Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In today's Truth in Movies, Benedict Cumberbatch and Michael Shannon race to birth an electrical revolution in not the raisin tussle, but the current war. This technology is within your grasp. I can build you an efficient motor. Documentary filmmaker Nick Broomfield proves that love is indeed not a victory march in Marianne and Leonard's Words of Love. She didn't really enjoy being beautiful before she met Leonard. And in Film Club, revenge is a dish served cold, alive and with wriggly, wiggly tentacles. We're talking Park Chan-wook's blood-curdling masterpiece, Old Boy. And that's all coming up in this week's Truth in Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Okay, hello and welcome Truth and Movie listeners. I'm Beth Webb, here standing in for Salford's finest, Michael Leader, who's on a well-deserved holiday, wishing you a very happy holiday, Michael. I'm Beth, I'm a freelance film broadcaster and journalist and frequent contributor to Little White Lies, and I'm joined today by the wise and wonderful Hannah Woodhead, associate editor to Little White Lies. Hi, Hannah. Hi, that was a much more enthusiastic intro than Michael usually gives me. I'm already winning, I'm, I'm Please with that. <laughs> and uh, the two cool for school, Campbell A. Campbell, freelance writer and fellow frequent collaborator to Little White Lies. Hi, Campbell A. Hello, I'm very flattered. <laughs> this is how I get them. This is how I get them. How are we doing today? I'm it's hot. Right. Yeah, it's so hot. We are wilting somewhat, but I feel like we're going to get through it together. We are stronger. <laughs> how are we feeling about the journey ahead? Electrified. I don't know, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a quiet week, isn't it? Let's say. It's a quiet week, but if anyone can make it more raucous, I think it's us. Quiet. It's a current war. Like, <laughs> you start taking been... my best gags, can't believe, please. We've barely started. You're waiting two years for this movie. <laughs> Thomas Edison bringing the noise. <laughs> okay, I feel bad now. <laughs> well, that's just gone ahead and done my job for me. So the first film we're getting stuck in into today is Alfonso Gomez Rejon's second film, The Current War. So uh, we have a little taster of The Current War for us. In this clip, Benedict Cumberbatch, who is Thomas Edison, is in cahoots with Nicholas Holt playing Nikola Tesla. And there's the clip for you now. You're supposed to be working on commutators with DC dynamos. 
Ow. Well, I have. Look, I have done everything you have asked, but you are making a mistake. What? Direct current may be fine for cities when the, when the buildings are close together, but most of your country is empty spaces. Only high this? voltage can span the distance. You are not thinking long term. Right. This technology is within your grasp. I can build you an efficient motor. Have you tried it? No. Look, in my head, it is nearly completed. They claim to have their heads full of sonnets and symphonies, but their only problem seems to be they can't quite write it down. Let me try. No, I can't start again. I got orders from Michigan. I got a room full of press waiting for me. Do what you were hired to do. So you will not honor your word about the remuneration? What are you talking about? Well, you said $50,000. Are you unhappy with my contribution? I'm paying you $50,000. That was a joke. Okay, so that was Nicholas Holt and Benedict Cumberbatch, two Brits taking on accents that are not British. Hannah, could you tell us a little bit about the film? Yeah, uh, so The Current War, which I read upon the Wikipedia for Thomas Edison yesterday because I'm nothing if not diligent, um, <laughs> is actually the, it was called The War of the Currents in its sort of proper historical parlance, but that isn't as catchy a title as The Current War. No um, And it was the kind of race between Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse to light up the United States, basically, to um, bring electric power to mass market. And it was between Edison and his direct current and Westinghouse and his alternate current. Alternating? I messed that up royally, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so this film kind of depicts their professional struggles, personal struggles, as you know, as biopics are want to do. And we have, yeah, Nicholas Holt in a smaller role, I guess, as Tesla. I think he's how, kind of there in the background. How do we feel about Nicholas Holt as an actor? I tend to find his secondary roles are much better than his leads, but I could be wrong. Mad Max Fury Road. And the favourite. And I the think favourite, he yeah. He's a great supporting actor, I have he's, to say. Whenever he's in a supporting role, he always gets to put a little bit more spice on yeah. whatever he's doing. Like, it gets to be Nux in uh, Fury Road, yeah. and it gets to be all crazy. And in the favourite, he gets to kind of play up the prissy uh, lord yeah. stuff. Like, he, I think, yeah, he's definitely a lot more interesting. Than this because, like, the alternative is... Warm what? bodies. <laughs> I, was just about, I was about to say that one. I think in the, in the current war, he actually, like... I mean, David... I just said like in the current war his Tesla obviously the uh, the, the the Lynch the the landmark performance of Tesla is David Bowie in the prestige for me but um I think that Holt does a pretty good job there's a very good scene with him and um Michael Shannon in a hotel room where <laughs> Nicholas Holt's kind of like wandering around the room and then he sits down and he gets up again and then he sits down again and he goes I think this whole room is uh, two degrees slanted or something and I, and I just really enjoyed that scene for some reason I, I don't really know. enjoyed your take on Tesla and I'd like to have uh, to seen that it was between me and him I, didn't, I don't know I think you could wear a wacky suit quite as wonderfully as he could yeah, so it's I mean, fine his wardrobe we should talk about that distractingly wacky Tesla's, I, I didn't know that Tesla was like regarded for his flamboyant fashion choices, but there are a lot of kind of close-ups dedicated to his uh, his wardrobe choices, and I, I'm here for it. He's a spiffy boy. Yeah. Now, Campbellate, this film premiered at Toronto Film Festival in 2017, and it's been percolating for some time. Could you go into why that was? Everyone knows that the best movies take time to mature, like a fine. <laughs> Sorry, uh, this is one of those uh, one of the films that got caught up in the. The 
allegations and eventual prosecution of Harvey Weinstein because it's a Weinstein Company film along with the beloved Tulip Fever. This one went under for a couple of years, mainly because of the allegations and because the company just didn't really know what to do with it. Well, during the festival, it didn't get very good reception either. Gomez Rajon says that basically they got into the festival on an early cut and he was saying that he was aware of Weinstein's reputation for butchering movies and then putting them out as he willed. And he says that this film was also also fell victim to that because they had to rush to a final cut for the festival. Oh, so um, there's a Rajon cut. There's a Rajon cut and they need to release it. <laughs> that, that makes it feel like it makes a lot more sense now because it does feel like... I felt watching this that there is a good movie there somewhere. Michael Shannon particularly is... I mean, I always like Michael Shannon, you know. Now, come the, on, Hannah. In the previous podcast, you did refer to him as Hannah's boy. Now, yeah, how does one earn that esteemed badge of honour? We don't really have a criteria. About, <laughs> we're talking about myself in the, uh, the plural. Um, it's more of a feeling you get when you look at an actor, when you I, watch an actor. I thought it was just movie dads. No, no. I mean, movie dads are my main sort of, like, audience. There's I, I, tears, then. There's tears, yeah. There's Hannah's boys and there's Hannah's guys. Because the guys is like a collegiate thing, you know? It's like, he's my guy, but the boys is like a special collection. And he's, oh, he's to, in a circle, is he? Michael yeah, he's, I'm, I'm making gestures that no one who's listening will be able to see, but I'm kind of like... It's an inclusive arm gesture. It's a, it's a warm arm gesture, a warm arm Welcoming gesture bringing in. them into my, my fold. It doesn't look weird at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, I, I adore Michael Shannon. I, I don't think the man is capable of being boring on screen. He's always, even when he is wilding, he is extremely entertaining to watch. What's and Christmas movie he made? It was the name of a town or something. Potter something. something. Pot- Potter's something. Pottersville, I think. It Pottersville, was yeah. yeah. Was he a furry in that? I think he was a, like a cryptozoologist. He was, there's something to do with Bigfoot. Like, this is what I mean. He, the guy has a, such a bizarre filmography. He just kind of seems to do films that he thinks will be fun. And I can relate to that as someone who's like, yeah, sure, why not? Maybe Most of fun. her life, you know? He is consistent. I think what is really interesting about this film is if you take a look at how the trajectories of the rest of the leading cast have shifted. Now, Kamala is our kind of MCU expert. We've got two Avengers uh, key players here whose trajectories have changed quite a lot in the last two years. Um, yeah, so figured I'd start with uh, Tom Holland because his has kind of been the fastest kind of peak. He's gone uh, into the stratosphere, I think, since... Uh, Holland. So, Holland. So yeah. the film was... Uh, this was intended to come out post-Homecoming, pre-Avengers... Yes. Um, I mean, it's originally slated that way. It was filmed between his time on Homecoming and the next Avengers movie. It's literally just like in a Marvel sandwich, like (laughs) um, production wise. But yeah, he's had quite a crazy career over the past three years because it's only really then where he's properly blown up. Like before then, he was he was like a graduate of like the Brit school kind of young theatre kid type. And then he was best known for being Billy Elliot for a little while. And there was another live show where he comes back as like an old Billy Elliot or something. (laughs) Or he's like a past Billy Elliot. It's something crazy like that. I I didn't have time to look more into that. Before his tenure as Spider-Man, he um, (laughs) was in a handful of like prestige picks. Like it was um, The The Impossible. Impossible. Oh my God. Oh, the impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the impossible. Who the impossible, y'all? And then briefly before his Spider-Man time, he was in in the heart of the sea as like a cabin boy. I can't remember the name of. Is that the Moby Dick film? Yeah, yeah. So he was like a cabin boy for Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> 
Does he just like he... gravitate towards like the cast of Marvel? Movies? Is he they're all like <laughs> taking him under his wing? But oh. yeah, so he's he's come on leaps and bounds. And then I think if you look at Benedict Cumberbatch, it almost has taken the reverse effect in that that sort of tapered out. I think when Phase Four of the MCU was launched, nobody was punching the air that we were getting a Doctor Strange two. But I could be wrong. I don't know. The title's pretty cool. I hate that title. What is the title? Oh, I think it's wicked. <laughs> it's so uh, corny. Doctor Strange in the multiverse, in the of, multiverse ma- of madness. Yeah, it sounds oh, wow. so bad. Cumberbatch has kind of had an interesting career in that, you know, before the current war, he was kind of huge. I mean, in, in the stratosphere, I would say. Um, but yeah, I mean, he still is. He's still obviously like an A-lister. Are we talking pre-current war release now or pre-current Pre- war? Like 2017. War 2017. Yeah. So in his Sherlock days, obviously, in the kind of when he was announced for Marvel, I think he was like, you know, there were the Cumber bitches and <laughs> he was very, oh, like, very, very famous. And... I still think he is, and obviously he's done this um, HBO show, Patrick Melrose, which is very well, yeah. well, very well received. But yeah, I think he's kind of doing less now. Maybe it's because it, fe- it feels to me like I don't see as much of him as I did. Yeah, it's probably just because of time between Marvel movies at this rate. He's done yeah. like four in the past like two years. Yeah, I guess, but yeah, and I and it probably feels to me like he's doing less because he has smaller roles in those films as well. But obviously, he'll still be caught up in making them I guess I just think it's an interesting way of, of seeing just how much Hollywood has shifted in these two years alone yeah. like it's been a really significant and it's the same with um, like Tom Hiddleston I don't think we see as much of him nowadays no, either he's sort of gone and by the way then he's going to be in that TV show as well so, I mean the thing with Cumberbatch though is that he's been around for a really long time yeah like, yeah, long long time I mean he was in Top- I think his first film where I was Topsy Turvy he was like a piano player in that or something, um, <laughs> but he was mostly like a theatre guy. So he was doing like Shakespeare, open air Shakespeare and stuff for like the, most of his career. Still does it occasionally. Then he did the TV stuff, The Hollow Crown. So was, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So he was kind of doing With all Hiddleston. of that kind of prestige television, <laughs> bringing that kind of theatrical gravitas to stuff. And then he broke out in Tinker Tailor, I think. Yeah. And then everyone was going mad for him in his weird alien face. Yeah. And how did you rate no your offense. performance in in this, Hannah? Um, he's doing what he always does. I, I'm not. I. By my own admission, I'm not a huge Benedict Cumberbatch fan, but I think that he... You know what it reminded me a lot of? I do not mean this in any way as a compliment to the current war. It reminded me of The Social Network, because it was trying to, like... Here's this like disagreeable genius, and the only thing he can't invent is a way to save himself. You know? And it, it was just very, like... Oh, I... Diet I found Sorkin. it. I, Diet Sorkin. That's exactly that's how I would describe it. That's a great Sorkin it. light. It is. You have these yeah. exchanges, and obviously, like, this is set in the late 1800s, and I'm like, that. This is not how people talked in the 1800s. You know. <laughs> I feel like Tesla was definitely the college kid who made a million out of his garage. Yeah. Like he definitely had that kind of air to him. Uh, when are we going to get like a, a really good Tesla biopic? That's what I want because Tesla is a fascinating character, and I think would be an incredible role for like a you know an actor with a bit of gravitas because he's such a he was a you know I think arguably more interesting than Edison or Westinghouse that's Hannah's hot take it's a very strange film to talk about because it's so inoffensive to me it's it's literally does what it says on the tin it's a biopic of Westinghouse and Edison I will say that I think the women in this film come off (laughs) there are only two women in the film they are Mrs Westinghouse and Mrs Edison and (laughs) from what I kind of read you know that that wasn't really the story of electricity there were a lot of women who were involved as well as could you just remind us who played both yeah so Catherine Waterston plays uh, Marguerite Westinghouse and Tubbins Middleton plays Mary Edison guess not much of a look in (laughs) Um, both the women behind the men they're framed as but actually don't 
don't get a huge amount yeah, of Yeah, especially not Mrs. Edison, who passed away when she was quite young, and that was had its effect on Edison and uh, his family. But I think I think Catherine Waterson is quite good. I quite like her as this sort of like feisty, you know, rallying voice behind uh, Westinghouse. And I think that her and Michael Shannon have a really good sort of chemistry together. Definitely. Right. With that in mind, I think we should go through some scores. Okay, Hannah, if I could hear from you your hot take on the current war. Oh, I think it's probably like a three in anticipation. I don't really... It's never a good sign when a film takes two years to come out. I just think if it had been a good film... Chill and Fever was a hit. <laughs> if it had been... And the same with Chill and Fever. If it had been good, they would have found a way to get it out before. Do you think Tom Holland has been key to this film coming out? I think that releasing it a month after Spider-Man Far From Home makes a lot of sense. Hmm. 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 Much to think about. Um, but yeah, it's a like a three, and probably a three. I, I do think it's a very inoffensive, like handsome-looking film. I did turn to Beth yesterday whilst we were watching it, and I had a massive headache because I'm not very well at the moment. And the camera angles in this film are all over the shop. So much swooping. I felt quite nauseous. I turned to Beth and said, "Why is it moving so much?" <laughs> That's Chung Chun Hoon. Oh. same cinematographer as Old Boy. What? Yeah. No. Yeah, he did both of um, Gomez Rajon's film. That's oh why, my god! That's why Miel and the Dying Girl look so crazy. And also, just because I wanted to say that, I'm not surprised that women didn't get much in this film because Miel and the, I've seen Miel yeah. and the Dying Girl. I, and I like Miel and the Dying Girl, but yeah, again, You're on the, the wrong di- side the, of the room here, Hannah. Hey, <laughs> you know, actually, I think the reason I like that film is because John Bernthal's in it, and he's one of Hannah's boys. Oh, he's great. <laughs> I like his research tattoo. Sorry, I'm completely Sorry. digressing. But yeah, Chung Chung well, Hoon okay. is like that he's makes the such only, a, a fun connection. Yeah, he's I love like that. One of maybe like three filmmakers that he's worked with, other than Park Chan Wook. The other being the guy who did it because he did the cinematography oh. for it. And there's like someone else who I can't so remember. The, so this is like a journey of discovery for me because all the way through, I was like, why would you use such kind of bizarre camera angles in a film that is a very straight period piece? And that is why. Okay, I, in Old Boy, obviously it works massively, and in me and Ellen the Dying Girl, I think it, it works more than it does here because that is a film about. There's that crazy filmmakers. shot where the camera like tilts on its side and it goes down the street yeah, and then like goes straight a, again. A it's in, really wild. There's a, there's a shot where in the current war, very early on, they're kind of following a train and it just goes, it like zooms in really quickly to the window. And it's, I felt quite nauseous watching it just because it was moving around so much. Yes. Yeah. Motion sickness inducing <laughs> a given. This is your fair warning. I actually fully concur with Hannah. Three years across the board. It's an enticing cast, at least. And uh, as Hannah says, a, a very handsome-looking film. I was very impressed with kind of the very sweeping industrial vistas kind of weighed in on me quite a lot. And then three to two, I think, looking back, I think working in film, it is quite nice to actually learn something about the founder of motion pictures. But it's not going to be a story that sticks with me for very long I don't think. I will. Just as a little addendum, they kind of go into... So the history of the electric chair in the United States, they kind of like touch on that very briefly, which I think is fascinating. Mm. And the way that Edison... Edison, I will say, comes in for a bit of a kicking in this film. And I liked that. I liked that it wasn't sort of like, oh, yeah, Edison, what a genius. It was showing that he for all his genius, was often a very unpleasant man. And there's this whole speech he makes about how he doesn't want to go into munitions because he doesn't want to be responsible for killing people. And then he kind of sells Westinghouse down the river to make some money by helping to design the electric chair, which they're trying to use to uh, execute prisoners in a more quote-unquote humane fashion. Uh, So, yeah, I found that all really interesting. But I think there's just too many gears in motion in this film. I think you're right. Yeah. 
it takes place over such a long time as well. It's like a period of like 10 years or something. 10 years and about 15 million locations. Yeah, yeah. God, they had to keep telling I you where they well, are. It's not very well travelled after that film, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Okay. And from that, from the bright lights of Chicago to the bohemian undercurrent of Greece, let's move on to Nick Broomfield's carefully laid out documentary, Marianne and Leonard, colon, Words of Love. Okay, so for Marion and Leonard, this is an in-depth look at the relationship between the late musician Leonard Cohen and his Norwegian muse, Marianne Ilhem. We're going to take a little clip for you now from the film, and we'll see you on the other side. When this love letter came from Leonard, I think she felt that it was all completed. Poets, they're just elusive creatures who are married to their muse. It was a love story which had 50 chapters without being together. Lots of people came to Idra. Artists. Jacqueline Kennedy, Princess Margaret. There was so much freedom there. She didn't really enjoy being beautiful before she met Leonard and he made her love living. So there we go. Can I have a favourite Leonard Cohen song from you both? I'm a sucker for Chelsea Hotel Number 2, which he wrote supposedly about Janis Joplin. I know it's quite cliche, but I mean, I, I am quite a big Leonard Cohen fan, so I was... I don't know, I feel like excited is the wrong word to use for a Nick Broomfield documentary. I'm never, I'm never really excited by the idea of a Nick Broomfield documentary, but I like Leonard Cohen a lot and I am always kind of interested to hear more about his process. He was quite a private man and I think you know, one of the best sort of songwriters of all time. So I was up for this, but... Oh, boy! Was I disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Campbell Campbell, a favourite Leonard Cohen song from you? For some reason, it's First We Take Manhattan. I don't, oh, I don't that's know. A great song. I feel like most people go for the the slightly more folksy stuff, but I, I was just I like the dark poetry over it. Like yeah, the, the lyrics to that are great. It's as great. Well. Yeah. I mean, it's a big I got, emo I mean, really thrill. They Hell make yeah. a big um, <laughs> point in this documentary, being like he was a poet. He was a poet, and yeah, he was. Like, you know? We know. We know. <laughs> we know, Nick. We know. We we um, also know. <laughs> yeah, I am a lot less familiar with Leonard Cohen than Hannah is. Did you feel like you were more so having? left the documentary did you feel impressed by his body of work and his general outlook on life i mean even as someone who doesn't know all that much about cohen i don't feel like i learned anything particularly new which is wild for a film about a sort of hidden life and supposedly about a relationship that was not always in the spotlight and a fairly one-sided one at that but then the film doesn't really bring another side to that it's pretty by the numbers isn't it i wanted to yeah. know what you both thought so so marianne is largely referred to she begins as his lover as muse and then she goes on to become a lifelong friend how do we feel about the term muse in this kind of modern framing do you think it's still a relevant term to use i mean if the film had any interest in deconstructing that concept or interrogating it a bit more than maybe fine but here it, it is it's used sincerely here which is yeah. disappointing because it's an old played out concept one that reduces women to be nothing more as something to be consulted or picked up it's and then dropped once word. like yeah, yeah once cohen was done with marianne so he would just kind of flit in and out of a life and it doesn't bring any criticism to the word as a loaded term and 
what that kind of relationship actually means to the pe- the other people in it rather than just like the guy just being like she was my inspiration and all that yeah i think Campbell's completely right um i think that the documentary is very fawning and it's clear that Broomfield really likes Lennon Cohen and doesn't really have a bad way to say about him. Um, Boy, did he like Marianne? <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, no. It's never really a good sign, is it, when you're watching a documentary and it opens with, I was once her lover, <laughs> you know? It's, it's, it's like, so cringe-inducing. And it's like weird BBC monotone. As yeah. Well. I found the narration in this so distracting and so... Dry. Dry and unpleasant to listen to. And Nick Broomfield's like, yeah, I'm going to make a documentary about uh, Marianne and, and Leonard these two amazing kind of interesting people and then make it all about myself I don't care Nick I really don't care (laughs) I'm sorry that sounds about harsh but I just don't if I wanted to watch a film about Nick Broomfield I would watch a film about Nick Broomfield there isn't one because no one's interested (laughs) sorry Um, you know I I just I think that when you're a documentary filmmaker there is a very fine line between giving a film a kind of narrative voice and putting too much of yourself into that film. And I think, sadly, this one really does kind of cross over into that territory of making it all about the filmmaker. He really crowbars himself in, doesn't he? Yeah. I, too, was a lover of Marianne. (laughs) You know, he's like, oh, I was a 20-year-old. Ooh, yes. Those are the heady days. I thought that we might have a life together, but then one of her other loves turned up and I was told to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Marianne, that's all I can say. If I was a a woman and someone made it, I mean, she's dead, so thankfully she doesn't have to sit through this. But if I I was a woman and someone made this film about me, I would be so insulted. Because it's basically, you know, he's put her name right there, front and centre, and then made it all about, he's reduced her to this relationship she had for not a long period of her life, like, Cohen kind of flitted in and out and I'm sure that the poor woman was much more than just Leonard Cohen's girlfriend it was kind of like it's just like hey wasn't free love cool and then <laughs> they move on it's like, anyway yeah Leonard Cohen's awesome yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's literally the film <laughs> just move on to his touring life and it's okay <laughs> yeah Marion goes by the wayside should have just called it Leonard should have really because that's always interested in latter stage Leonard Cohen which is if it had been a documentary just about Leonard Cohen that kind of had a bit about his relationship with Marianne, then you know maybe that would be less of a. Maybe I would look more kindly on it because it's not trying to be something it's not. But he's positioned this woman as this central figure, and made this ninety-minute movie in which I would say she maybe is there for thirty minutes, and I think it feels quite invasive as well. You know, obviously she passed away, and he's using all these kind of recordings and you know really kind of like personal material from her life and I I don't know I just I thought who are you who who is this man who once had sex with her to like make a movie about her just it just felt like that's the element that makes it feel really strange whereas like he's kind of like he had this interaction with her one time and takes his free license to kind of just like poke apart yeah it would be less troubling if he'd used this archive footage for something that was actually meaningful and about Marianne and not himself and his hero, Leonard Cohen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just I just take umbrage with this whole film existing. I don't know who it's for. I mean, other than kind of like really, like really into it, Leonard Cohen fans. But even then, like I've spoken to some of my friends who are massive Leonard Cohen fans and they felt the same way as me, that this film doesn't really tell you anything new, doesn't really give you any insight into Leonard Cohen that you wouldn't get from kind of reading about him or listening to his music, in fact. And yeah, and poor Marianne, I think, really has done a disservice. And also he keeps pronouncing her name. I'm pronouncing it wrong now. But <laughs> you know, at the beginning they kind of said, there's this anecdote about the song, is it so long, Marianne? 
Yes. Leonard Cohen song and how she went up to Leonard Cohen and was like, well, it's a good job you didn't write that about me because that's not how you say my name. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. And obviously, that's kind of like gives you a hint of this like woman who kind of captured the imagination of this great American poet, blah, 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 Canadian poet, sorry, blah, blah, blah. But it's just a very paint-by-numbers not even like properly paint, just kind of like weird watercolour portrait of this woman who I think probably had a lot more going on than Nick Broomfield really gives her credit for. Do you think it's a well-made documentary? Do you think that with somebody who's had it as an extensive oeuvre of work as Broomfield, <laughs> it's actually a well-put-together, well-researched piece of filmmaking? No. Great, great. Sorry. Just, it, it, Don't apologize. I'm not Nick Broomfield. You go nuts. I, I just think it, I, I'm, I mean, I'm no expert on documentaries, not by a long shot, but I think it feels very like BBC4 and not one of the good BBC4 documentaries. It just feels very... One of the ones that sends you to sleep. Yeah. And his narration really does not help with that. It's very dry and very like, oh, yes, this island in Greece where everyone slept with each other. And I'm just like... I, oh. No. You think of someone like Leonard Cohen, who was such an interesting and vibrant poet. And so, you know, his music from kind of the start of his career right up until the end was always kind of like playing with form and playing with like, you know, even where we were talking earlier, like his folksy stuff compared to stuff like First We Take Manhattan and even Hallelujah. You think about how much difference there was in his work. And then do we have it presented in this very like formal, rigid like that is literally the film I just think that he's more a more interesting artist than this film depicts him even though Nick Broomfield clearly is in love with him it kind of just redu- it just reduces him to this roguish not even like a fun roguish person but like he's just this guy who slept with a person and then he's just like yeah I've got to go make my art now like kind of yeah. it's bor- he's a cliche which is in- an but- insane thing to do to yeah, and it doesn't even interrogate that. It's like if you're going to present someone as a massive cliche, at least like have the good decency to go into that and like you know act on it. Absolutely loved the three to five minute detour in which Leonard Cohen's manager talks about how much sex they both had. That was <laughs> wistfully. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, those were the days. <laughs> good lord! And with that, let's let's go to some scores. All right, Campbell, we'll start with you. <laughs> fresh off the back of that, um, what was your anticipated score for this um i had a three in anticipation because i was interested to know more about lenny cohen i didn't know who marianne was i still don't so um <laughs> i'd put gonna put my enjoyment and in retrospect at twos so it's lacking in in almost every sense that a documentary like this can it it's reductive to it's two subjects and also just really boring to watch <laughs> Hannah Woodhead yeah oh I, you know this is a 90 minute film that took me three hours to watch because it was just so boring and I kept having to like just pause it just to like take a bit of space from Nick Broomfield which I think Marianne probably also wanted because he sounds like a nightmare um I hope he's not listening <laughs> I'm sure he's not sorry uh, diverging from my scores yeah I I um I mean, I guess I was at maybe a three in anticipation. I heard the name Leonard Cohen. I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Like Leonard Cohen, let's go in. Let's go see what's going on. And then it's like a two and a one. I genuinely think this is like one of the worst fawning white man talking about another white man who he loves documentaries with no formal excitement or like stimuli. I think it's just a droning, boring film. And I 
feel like I've had an hour and a half of my life stolen by Nick Broomfield and I demand uh, restitution. Justice. <laughs> well, how long's a Leonard Cohen album? 45 minutes? You would do better just like sticking two of those on for 90 minutes. <laughs> you would learn more about Leonard Cohen and his relationship with Marianne by doing that. Well, there we go. Wise advice from a wise <laughs> Hannah Woodhead. So with that in mind, going from the worst film of the week to one of the best of the noughties. Let's dive straight into Park Chan-wook's 2003 Old Boy. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, after being kidnapped and imprisoned for 15 years, Oh Desu is released only to find out that he must find his captor in five days. And that is just the start of it. Now, we've had loads of comments on this one this week, which is lovely. Thank you to our listeners. I'm going to start us off with Stuart Field. Stuart says, One of the few thrillers that completely meets your expectations. The setup is superb, as is the denouement. As if Shakespeare made a movie. Big words from Stuart. Oh, I've paid a lot of compliment on Shakespeare's name there. <laughs> a lot of credit to the man. You are dragging think, him today, I Hannah. don't think he would have made this movie. Kenneth Branner in shambles. <laughs> no! <laughs> His whole career has been, what if Shakespeare made a movie? Uh, yeah, this one's from the Hipster Llama, a regular podcast commenter. Thanks for this. Didn't get the measure of it the first time. Put off by quite how over the top the climax is, but absolutely loved it on a revisit. That being said, if you like Old Boy, please try to type down I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. For my money, the best Park Chan-wook film. Yeah, Ooh, great movie. Great movie. Mm. I love that film. I remember there was like a sequence where someone turns into a butterfly. Anyway, that's, that's, I'm <laughs> digressing. Okay, we've got one from Chris Rogers here. Is it bad that the scene with the octopus gave me a massive hankering for seafood? 
I will cast no judgment because almost every scene in the TV show Hannibal where someone eats makes me hungry. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming out. <laughs> Remembering not to invite you around for dinner, Camberley. <laughs> There's a bit where they eat. Never mind. <laughs> Okay. Let's I want to eat something alive. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Almond <laughs> uh, Brown. Hi, Almond. <laughs> One of those revelatory films that unlocked the treasure trove of Asian cinema for so many viewers. Weird, wild, original, and distinctly South Korean. It still retains its power all these years later. Got one from uh, William Webb. That's not my dad. <laughs> Dear Beth, you're doing such a great job on the podcast. Thanks, Dad. Um, William Webb, I watched it in a mate's garage when I was, well, not sure, but definitely under the number on the box. Blew my mind, led to a decade long obsession with Tartan DVDs, and began a love affair with Korean movies. And for those who do not know Tartan, we're a DVD distributor. She did a lot of uh, foreign films and art house films, great distributor. So now, sadly, Defunct, I think. But oh, that's too bad. I've got a few tartans on my shelf. Yeah, same. If you go down they to any like love. good uh, charity shop, you'll probably you'll be able to get a few tartans. Yeah, great guys. And uh, I think I think they're all doing other things now. All the tartan crew. But, great, yeah. good for them. There was a boy at my uni that had so um, old boy is part of the Vengeance trilogy, which we'll dive into shortly. But he had the Vengeance trilogy on DVD, and it came with a commemorative hammer. What? Oh. What better? <laughs> Accompaniment to three of the most violent films of the decade than a commemorative hammer that doubled up as a bottle opener. That's incredible. I'd that love rules. to know if anyone out there has the commemorative hammer. Isn't that just wild? That's I'm disappointed great. that it's not. Uh, didn't come with a double-barreled pistol from Lady Vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> now this is what I want to get into. So let's talk vengeance. Um, Camille, are you a part chamwok aficionado? Would you call yourself one? I'm missing like a few notches in my cap when it comes to him but uh, yes I love his films very much where does this sit within his body of work not quite at the top but very close to it there's some things that feel a little bit thin on the ground when it comes to the character work outside of Odesu who is fantastic but he's this very um, him and Maybe to a slightly lesser extent, Woo Jin are these very complicated figures and everything else that they run into is a little bit incidental. I think, I guess maybe I'm being a little bit too demanding and I wanted a little bit more flavour in Mido's life. But otherwise, I absolutely love this film. It was a gateway film to South Korean cinema for me as well. A lot of Park Chan-wook's films sit at the top of my favourites list. For some reason, Stoker is right up there. <laughs> Stoker's my favourite of his films. I remember, Really? Uh, yeah, no, I adore Stoker. I remember seeing Old Boy when I was at university and then I heard that Stoker was coming out and I was working at the View Leeds at the time, like the one in the city centre, if anyone is listening in Leeds. And we got Stoker and I like I like bagsy the poster. I was so excited. I was like, Yes You stoked yes. for Stoker. I was stoked for Stoker. Me and Vajikowska in her like, you know, she's great in Stoker. And and Nicole Kidman I think gives an amazing performance as well. There's this amazing moment where she sat on the bed and she says to Mia Vazikovska, I'm determined to get her name right at least once this podcast. Personally, I can't wait to watch life tear you apart, which is such a brutal thing to say to your own child. She oh, evil in that movie. She's, oh, yeah, but um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I, I remember watching Stoker and there were three of us in the cinema and there's a, a shower scene in Stoker. Oh my God. And the other the other people in the cinema left at that point. I was there on my own like, whoop. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that he's a singular filmmaker, real a real like doesn't have a bad film in him if uh, you ask me. And I have yet to see the Little Drummer Girl, which was his um, BBC adaptation of John Le Carre's novel. I've yeah. watched two episodes of that. 
They couldn't tame him. (laughs) (laughs) Again, Michael Shannon, you know, the the guy comes through, apparently very Um, good in that as well. I think, yeah, the ones I haven't seen, I haven't seen Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and I haven't seen Joint Security Area, but I've seen Lady Vengeance and I think that sits on a level with Old Boy, but Old Boy kind of comes out on top purely because of how perverse and crazy it is. It's Um, a film which you can only watch a certain way once. Once you've seen it for the first time, you'll never see it the same way again, which I think is a fair thing to say. You mentioned the shower scene in Stoker. I think we can boil, not that I want to, but we can boil this film down to two very definitive scenes. Yeah. So we'll start with uh, when we join Odessu as he's come out of captivity. He's got this overwhelming urge to reconnect with life very directly. Uh, Hannah, can you tell us about the octopus scene, please? Uh, Yeah, so he's been cooped up in this room and he's been eating the same, is it Chinese food? It's uh, dumplings. Dumplings, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm getting it confused with the remake, which is sin. We'll get to that in a minute. But (laughs) yeah, so he's been eating these dumplings for years and he comes out and he goes, he sort of staggers uh, over to this restaurant and he says... I want to eat something. I, I want to eat. I'm not doing it the justice. The, the, li- the line we've been. I want to eat something alive, which is again great line. And uh, he is served up this octopus, little yeah. octopus thing. And we were discussing this before, and it is a, a dish that you can eat in South Korea and in Japan. And but but, it, but they usually bring it to the table and kill it, and you eat it, and it's still wriggling. But you're not eat, actually eating it alive. Whereas in this film, Choi Min Sik, bless him, had, had to eat this, uh, but had to eat this live octopus four uh, times. He did it four times. Four times. I, a prayer for each braver one than the Marines. He's Buddhist as well. Yeah, oh so my he, God. Uh, he prayed for a little while before and after eating each what one. What commitment to acting that is! <laughs> Campbell told us a great little like, anecdote. I don't know if you want to share it. Oh, when <laughs> Park Chan Wook was asked about, it's a fairly famous thing that Choi Min Sik was a Buddhist and that it was really difficult for him to actually go through this for the scene. But he was I mean, ha- willing to go through. It's difficult for anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's very difficult for him to go through the scene. So an interviewer asked, "Do you feel sorry for Choi Min Sik having to do this as a Buddhist?" And Park Chan just goes, "I feel more sorry for the octopus." <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah, I, I, it's such a kind of disgusting, visceral, it's like, grotesque, stomach-churning moment. I love film. when it, the, the tentacles like cling to his face. Yeah. And and one just, sort oh. of wraps around his nose. It's really quite disgusting. But what an incredible <laughs> scene to define the commitment to that role, which it, it is an incredible... I think it's distracting the amount of body horror and, and the... the odds and, and nasty bits in it, it's sort of distract from the fact that it is it is an incredible performance from him. Yeah, it's I love watching his metamorphosis throughout the whole film because he starts off as this fairly like bland white collar man in jail Booze for hand. drinking Booze Hound. <laughs> like you just see him as this kind of very ordinary drunk person and then he turns into this kind of hulking monster with like calluses on his knuckles from having like punched a wall for fifteen years. Tell me a bit about the corridor scene. This is the other scene that I think really lingers in people's memories. If you could just set yes. that up for it. A scene that has been emulated in a lot of Screen arts. One of my favourite examples of a straight up homage to this scene is in the CW's Arrow, <laughs> which is where they have a, a corridor fight where it's done in a long take, and then at the end of it, it has the same shot where he's like standing facing the camera, and then it's over his shoulder, there's a trail of bodies behind him. Do they do this in um, Daredevil as well? Yes, um, they do. Netflix Daredevil. I think, oh, or kind more of an homage. Or less, but it, you know, it's the DNA kind of lives on it. Yeah, in, like, but that, I think those kind of scenes, also but, in. Um, 
I would like to make the connection between this and Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Hammer. In which a another hulking protagonist who is a man of few words uses a hammer to dispatch people that have wronged him <laughs> in a corridor, no less. Eventual with a hammer is a definite mood, I think. Um, <laughs> so. Sorry, I'm bringing it back to the hammer scene. 17 takes? 17 takes is unedited, apart from there's a bit where a knife goes into his back. That's CGI, Which is CGI, thank goodness. It's like that, the only instances <laughs> of CGI in the film. Him. One of maybe three instances of CGI in the film, the other being an ant coming out of his skin and oh, a giant yeah. ant on the oh, subway. The <laughs> oh, this um, movie rules. Do you think it looks dated <laughs> no. by today's standards? No, 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 God, no. I think it the, really does hold I up. I love the framing of it as well, where it just slow, where it's very, again, the boy Chung Chun Hoon. Um, <laughs> He frames it just kind of head on like and pans down the corridor horizontally, uh, moves along, and it's very slowly, and you just kind of see the carnage just slowly unfolding. You see every hit, and it's, it's just this fatigue of it. And yeah. they're not down and out. These people are getting back up again, just chucking anything within arms. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's when they're just like scrappy, crawling. Yeah. It's unpolished. I think it's if you really compare that to the kind of big blockbuster fight scenes, you know, they fall apart completely. It yeah. is just a masterclass in choreography and editing, even though that is a Edited. You know, I can't kind of praise the, the choice um, not to cut. The well, you know, well, yeah. sometimes you know you need to know when to cut and when not to cut. <laughs> um, uh, I think, yeah, it's just part of the reason it hasn't dated is because it does kind of not use a lot of CGI. And how do we feel about? The uh, 2013 <laughs> remake, uh, uh, direct- Spike Lee's Old enough. Boy, with Josh Brolin. You don't want to put any dirt on Spike Lee's name, but my man, Uncle why? Spike, I love you, but come on. <laughs> it's funny because it was touted as the same thing they've done with a bunch of other remakes, where it's like, well, no, we're paying homage to the source material. We're, like, yeah. we're going back to the manga, but, um, <laughs> it uses, the but it's like, it uses the same shots with him coming out of the case. It even uses a scene in which he beats a bunch of people to death with a hammer in a very long take. But, crucially, the Spike Lee version introduces stairs. <laughs> stairs! <laughs> the natural enemy! <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just... Uh, the remake was just kind of one of those examples where you just don't need to go there. You know, I, 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 it was a couple of years after The Departed, which is obviously a remake of Internal Affairs, and everyone was kind of like, oh, you know do we really need to be remaking these amazing Asian films? They have kind of their country in their DNA and to remake them, I think, takes away from that and takes away from what makes them amazing in the first place. But whereas I think Scorsese's The Departed kind of does go to great efforts to do its own thing and be very different, I don't think that Spike Lee's old boy really tries at all. Yeah, it feels like a kind of facsimile of the original one because where that was a fairly engrossing character study and like kind of very introspective about what vengeance means to these people mm. and this cycle of violence. I mean, the hammer scene is a standout scene, but action isn't its primary drive. That's like maybe the last well, last action scene in the movie, and it's about halfway through. And Spike Lee's old boy feels like it's aping the kind of pulpy elements of that without doing the work. Mm. Everything else feels kind of borrowed, and it's just it feels it doesn't feel fresh for a Spike Lee joint. And it changes the ending. And I think Old Boy has, the original Old Boy has a great ending, a really like a great final shot. And it's like heartbreaking the way the film ends. Whereas Spike Lee's version is just. He just goes back to the room. He just goes back to the room. And you're like, if, if you think about the character, I don't think it makes sense. His but. biggest mistake, not filming in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we implore you to 
politely ignore Spike Lee's Old Boy <laughs> and get yourself out to UK theatres next week when Old Boy will be re-released across the nation. Well, we've had a bit of a wild ride, haven't we, this week? <laughs> it's been ups and downs, uh, swings and roundabouts. But do join us next week where Michael will be back in the hosting chair for Turbocharged Family Affair Hobbs and Shaw Woo! with Nell and I, but with ladies, animals, and a slightly more reputable Spike Lee joint do the right thing. I thought that the with Nell and I comment was going to be for Hobbs and Shaw. I mean, why not? That's the film we really want that to is see. The film I want Cross to see. over event of the decade. <laughs> Thank you so much to my mildly unimpressed but wonderful nonetheless guests Camberley Campbell and Hannah Woodhead and I was your host Beth Webb and this was a 7 Digital production Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.